Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. I want to say welcome to our visitors today. We're so glad that you're here. Um, you're visiting with us. You are our special guest, and we're very, very thankful to see you today. We are in the middle of a series of teaching this fall called Ready for War, and if you've missed the first four lessons, I encourage you to you can find them on our website or on the iTunes podcast uh, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. It's available out there. And in the first four weeks, what we've tried to do is lay a foundation of what this war is that we're really in. The goal is for each of us to experience a sort of victory, a sort of uh, available win over Satan and over sin in our lives. And so what we've tried to do is make you aware of what this war is, how it's fought, and the fact that we can be courageous warriors because the war has been won in Jesus Christ. We are called to war with our armor. And so today, after laying this foundation for the first few weeks, today what we're going to do is begin for the next seven weeks going through piece by piece the armor of God. The armor of God is the gift that God has given to us for us to put on and take up, meaning to trust and to use. And when we do that, we're going to find the victory that God has promised for us. Paul starts us off today with a sort of unusual piece that he includes with the armor. And out of all the pieces that you might think of when I say the armor of God, this is probably not one of the first ones you think about, the belt, the belt of truth. The belt is rarely credited in the victory that a soldier might have. Really, do you ever hear some? Rarely do you ever hear anybody say, "Well, I won this war because of the kind of belt that I was wearing." That's usually not what people typically think about. But Paul starts here because the belt is the foundational piece of any soldier's armor. Now, the soldier that Paul was thinking about was a traditional first-century Roman soldier. And for a Roman soldier, he would wear a belt which would be approximately a, maybe a four to six inch thick piece of leather that would have metal around it for protection and then have a metal buckle. And oftentimes it would have um, beads or something hanging in front for additional protection. But this belt served two major purposes in the preparation of the soldier. The first one was this. It was a belt that would hold the tunic of the soldier. Now, in those days, almost everyone would wear what was called a tunic, which is like a large sheet, a large piece of fabric that would have holes for your arms and a hole for your head, and you would put it on, and traditionally the person would just wear this casually every day. It was like the outer garment that they would wear, not their inner garment. And when a person would prepare themselves to do something, like work in the field, or prepare themselves to maybe go for a walk, or specifically when a soldier would prepare themselves, they would have to tuck that tunic in so they could move. And so the belt was the place where the soldier would take his tunic and tie it up into his belt. Because you, as you can imagine, being in war, wearing a tunic would make it hard to move and also easy to grab. Think about it as sort of like why we have tighter and tighter football jerseys today. 
because mainly those Browns uh, never could figure out how to win, so they have to hold a lot. And so the NFL decided to make jerseys tighter and tighter so those Brown players couldn't, uh, you know, do holding against our Steelers. The second reason, easy, John. <laughs> easy, all right. The second reason the soldier would wear a belt is to hold the rest of his armor in place. The belt was the place where the sheath was held for his sword. The belt was the place where the straps of the breastplate were secured to, and so the soldier would not be able to move and keep his sword and keep his breastplate um, held to him unless he was wearing this belt. And for us today, Paul says, our belt is truth. The thing that carries all the other pieces of the armor to make sure we have them is our belt of truth. And that which gets us ready and mobilized to run and to fight and to work is the belt. And so we've got to see how truth plays a central role in preparing you and protecting you in this battle. And so we've got to know, we've got to know how to put it on, we've got to know how to take it up. And for us today, we're going to start with the fact that we must know truth. Secondly, we've got to own truth. And third, we'll see we've got to actually live in this truth. So let's start with number one. We've got to know truth. We must know truth. You know, this is not a religious statement at all. This is just a basic statement that whether you're religious or not, you would agree with, which is truth is central to your life going well. It's essential. Everyone needs truth. Think about it. Parents want to know if their children are telling the truth. It helps them parent better. You probably want to know if your boss at work is telling you the truth. Helps you work better. All of us in here, I think, given the current climate, are begging for our news outlets to tell us what? Please tell us the truth, right? Fake news is all the rage. We desperately want our politicians, when debating and advertising to us, to tell us the truth. That's what frustrates us. And we want, especially if people are gossiping about us, for the truth to actually be known, don't we? Truth is central to us. We desperately need truth, not just in these matters of life, but in the biggest matters of life, like things like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going after this life is over? What's wrong with the world? How is the world fixed? Big questions like that. We need the truth, and Jesus has told us the place where that truth is found when he said about God in prayer, God, your word is truth. See, Jesus wasn't just saying, God, your word is your truth. Major difference. It sounds subtle, but you got to stay with me. This is major difference. Jesus did not pray, God, your word is your truth. Your truth is sort of a pretty popular phrase today. People like to use it, meaning just tell me what's real about you. And it's very subjective, and you can have your truth about things, what's true about you, your likes, your dislikes, things of that nature. But when Jesus here prayed, he didn't say, God, your word is your truth, meaning you're just telling us how you feel about life. He says, your word is reality, ultimate reality, ultimate truth. You see, the truth of God's word is how Jesus defeated Satan. In that famous story in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, fighting in the temptation of Satan, most certainly Jesus prayed in that experience. But what Scripture points us to is this idea, that Jesus immediately was able to defeat Satan because of 
the Word of God. Truth. That's how he did it. You see, truth diffuses Satan's only go-to attack on you, which is lies, deception, hyperbole, manipulation. Truth diffuses Satan's ability to lie to you. That's why Jesus says that we ought to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need a steady diet of it. We need to ingest it and to know it and to be familiar with it. And that's exactly why, as we see in the parable of the soils, you know the parable that Jesus told about a sower that goes out to sow, and there's four different kinds of soil? In the three soils that are unproductive, the seed is always under attack. Whether it's being crowded out, or it's in shallow ground, or it's being taken away, Satan is always attacking the seed. And Jesus tells us the seed is the Word of God. Three ways he attacks it, I want you to see. Satan attacks the Word of God three ways, and I want you to maybe identify which way he attacks it most readily for you. The first way is this, indifference. And we might back up and say, really is there value in reading God's Word? A host of people are struggling with this today. They're wondering if the Bible is antiquated, outdated, not relevant, not contemporary anymore. It's a great book of historical euphemisms, and it's a great story of fables that have wisdom, but it's outdated, and many people are struggling to read God's Word because they've really backed up and said, I'm just not convinced it's valuable. So Satan attacks us through indifference. He attacks us through doubt. Are you sure that it's true? The truthfulness of God's Word is under serious attack, the credibility of it. It's constantly being questioned like, well, who actually wrote it? And how do you know what you have today is actually what God wanted from you? And how, There's all kinds of ways in which the Word of God is being attacked, saying that it's not true. And the third way is this. you got indifference, you have doubt, and you have deception. Now, deception is the most subtle way that it's being attacked. And you might not know right now that you're being attacked this way. Because here's what deception says in your internal dialogue. I know that's what the Word of God says, but I actually think there's a better way. That's deception. And we live this way frequently. In fact, all sin finds its roots in this deception, meaning, okay, I've heard what God has to say about this, but I'm going to actually go a different way. And when we live in a world of deception, we need something that can anchor us, something reliable, something steady. Something unshakable in a world that just seems like it's constantly changing. And we need truth. And Satan is defeated by truth because all sin is a product of some form of deception. So first of all, if we're going to wear this belt of truth to have victory in our battle, you actually have to know truth. But secondly, you've got to own truth. And here's kind of the rub. Here's where it gets a little bit difficult. You see, truth isn't always easy to receive. It's not always easy to give either, is it? You ever wonder why it's so hard to tell somebody they have pepper in their teeth? Because telling the truth confronts people in their current circumstance. And the people in that circumstance don't always want to be confronted. Truth is difficult. And here's where the analogy becomes so beautiful if you'll see it. Because Paul says truth is like our belt. And he says it's girded around your waist, or if some of you have a different translation, it says girded around your loins. Now, loins is an important word in the Hebrew culture. Paul used this word on purpose. It has great meaning. The word loins represented for the Jew 
the inner person. The loins is where the person's will rested, where the person's intent, where their heart is what the Jews called it. And so when he says the belt has to go around your waist or your loins, what he's saying is to wear the belt of truth means that your inner life must also be truthful. You can't just have externally truth coming to your brain. You also have to have truth internally with who you are. And that's what it means to wear the belt of truth. It starts with how you live. You see, living with lies never goes well. It promises great outcomes, never ever delivers those great outcomes. Cheating on your taxes will give you more money. Cheating on a test might give you a better grade, promises great outcomes. Lying to your friends or to your parents might help you escape from a particular problem in a particular moment. Short-term gain, long-term loss. Manipulating your partner, your spouse, or manipulating a coworker to kind of get what you want in the moment might give you that short-term gain, but long-term it's destroyed that relationship. You see, living a lie promises great outcomes, but constantly eradicates our life. David was a man who lived a lie for about a year in his life. He had taken another man's wife, Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And over the course of about a year, David lived a lie. And nothing in his life went right. He was miserable. And the question we have to ask is this. What drives us to live in lies? What drives us to live with deception? We might think immediately that, well, sin makes us do that. Whether it's the desire for sin, so I lie about it, sin makes us do this. So I desire sin, or I have sin in my life, and because of that, I start to live a lie. But there's actually a deeper root that you've got to get underneath to unearth if you're going to solve this problem. And that's fear. The root of all of your hypocrisy is fear. And fear manifests itself in all kinds of sins. Let me show you. It can manifest itself in pride. For instance, I can't let you people know the kind of sin I have in my life. So I've got to hide that. That's fear. I'm afraid of you. And that bears out in pride, meaning I don't want you to think bad about me because I care about what you think about me. And so my pride says, lie about yourself and pretend, don't be honest. That's sinful, but that's based in fear. Or maybe lust. Lust says, I can't live without this thing. I can't live without this experience. I can't live without this money, this sex, this, this uh, drug. I can't live without it. And lust tells you that. And out of fear of not being able to live without it, you go for it. Or maybe despair. That's how fear shows up. I can't believe this is true about me. And so we don't always lie to others, but we lie to ourselves. And we're afraid that there might be some truths about ourselves that we don't want to admit in doubt. Maybe we look to the heavens and say, there's no way God can save me if this is true. And we begin to be deceptive. You see, <clears throat> remember where the war is being fought. If you listen to all that internal dialogue that I just shared with you about pride and lust and despair and doubt, all based in fear, it's all being fought in your mind. That's where this war is being fought. And so this fight is one, not just how you live, but also how you think. You see, truth that is received from God empowers truth to be lived in your life. David eventually confessed his sin when he was confronted with truth, both about his error and truth about God. 
he finally realized, he remembered, he says in Psalm 32, I remember that God forgives iniquity. And when he remembered that truth about God, he finally confessed it. And that's what drove him to say in Psalm 51, God, you desire truth in the inward being. You want my inward parts to be truthful. You see, when you believe truth, not just about yourself or about the world, but also about God, it frees you to live without the fear that makes you lie to others and lie to yourself. Let me show you this pride thing. We say, I can't let people know who I am, so I've got to hide. Well, Jesus tells us, don't fear the one who can just kill your body. You ought to fear the one that can kill both body and soul. Truth. Well, how about lust? I can't live without this thing because I won't be happy or satisfied unless I have this thing. I've got to have it, even though it's sinful. Well, truth from God says, in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. Truth. How about despair? This can't be true about me. Who I am, it just overwhelms me with despair and depression. On Isaiah chapter 62, it says, Just like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, God says, so I rejoice over you. So you might look at yourself and say, I don't like what I see. But God says, when I see you in Jesus Christ, I see like a groom seeing his bride coming for the first time. You ever experienced that at a wedding? Maybe your own? When the man standing at the front finally sees his wife come around the corner, and there she is. She's going to be his wife. He's usually not upset. Usually. And God says, just like a groom when he sees his bride, it's exactly how I feel when I see you. How's your despair doing with that truth? Or maybe doubt. No way God will save me. And you come to Scripture, and Scripture tells you, is the arm of the Lord too short that he cannot save? Or Hebrews tells us, he saves to the uttermost. Do you see how truth, when you receive this, eradicate sin in your self-talk so that you can find freedom. But that brings us to the last point. That is, you've got to not just know truth and own truth. You've got to live this truth. You see, when a soldier put on his belt, it meant that he was ready for action. He would take the garment and he would tie it up into his belt. And when he put that on, he was no longer doing other things like gardening or making dinner. When he put that belt on, it was time for action. It was time to fight. And once our belt of truth is on, it's time to live in this truth. And there's two main ways. First of all, there's actions you take. And we've got to be people that receive the truth no matter the cost. Because there are times that truth will confront you. There are times that truth, in the light of the truth, will expose your sin. It will show you your shortcomings. And no matter the cost, we have to be people that take that action and say, God, show me truth. And at the same time, that truth shows you also the reality about God and his grace and his love and his mercy. And we've also got to live the truth, which means that we've got to accept the truth, confess our reality of what's true about us, repent and rejoice over God in the way that he's saving us, disarming Satan along the way. But secondly, we've got to let God take his action, too. You see, when you know the truth and you own the truth, there's not only actions you take, like receiving it and living it, but there's also an action God takes. I like to call it gentle sanctification. Little by little, over time, God slowly but surely grows you into the person that you're supposed to be. You're only stagnant in your Christian growth 
if you're not receiving truth and owning truth. You slow down and stop when you stop receiving truth and you stop believing truth. But if we'll receive it and believe truth, not just externally but internally, God slowly but surely begins to change us. That's what Jesus prayed about in John 17 about his disciples. He said, God, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And like David taught us to pray in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a conviction. He's saying, God will be the one that leads me, and I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters to drink. So at times he gently leads me, and at times he forcefully makes me lie down in green pastures with truth. I, I want to show you an illustration about how this works. There we go. And I've used this illustration multiple times, but I want to share it with those who may not have seen it before. Um, most people, when I say describe what the Christian life looks like on a chart or a graph, most people would say it looks like a line graph, meaning, you know, the vertical axis is holiness and the horizontal axis is time. And over time, your life sort of looks like this, right? You know, you're like holy for a while, then you're not, then you're back and forth. And you hope that when you get to the end of your time, you're above the mythical line that says holy enough, holy enough to get to heaven. You know, you just kind of hope that you end on a peak, not a recession. But that's really an improper way to view the Christian life. The better way is to think about a record. And I've asked you this before, I think, but how many lines are on an actual original LP? Do you know? There's just one. One line. And it starts on the outside, and it goes around the circle continually until it gets where? To the middle. And that's a better way probably to look at life. We've got a, one line. And it starts with truth being told to us. And there's God in the middle. And that's awareness. Awareness of truth. Meaning, okay, I see from Scripture that I am maybe angry or have greed or have lust. And I see this from God. And in truth, I own it. And that moves you to what's called confession. You know, the word confession just means to own your sin, to own what's true. So when I see Scripture telling me that I shouldn't have rage or wrath, or I see Scripture telling me not to lust, or not to have um, you know, anger towards my brother, and I say, wow, I do, I own that. And when I own it, that leads me to repentance. Repentance is in the next moment that you have to either be greedy or lust or anger or fear, all those things. I choose a different way. Truth guides me. And when you walk through this path of awareness of your sin, confession of your sin, repentance of your sin, it brings you to being refreshed or renewed in grace. But where does the circle come back to? The top. And maybe the first time around, that's year one of your Christian walk. And God really works on one of your sins. He really begins to shape you and change you through truth. And you're wearing this belt of truth saying, I'll receive truth, I'll own truth, and I'll live in truth. And then he brings you back around to the top year two and year three. But where are you getting closer as you stay on this line? To God. And the other thing is, what happens to this line as you go around it more and more? Does it get longer or shorter? You get better at this process. You see, to wear the belt of truth means to receive from God what's true about him, the world, and me. And to own the truth in my inward parts. God, tell me what's true about me so that I can become like you. And to walk in truth so that I confess, I repent, and I'm renewed. You see, truth demands that we be all in. Like the soldier who puts his belt on, 
he is not going to do something else. He's going to war. And truth demanded that Jesus be all in. He says, I came to bear witness to the truth. That's what my life is for. And truth demanded that he not turn back, but be all in. There's this really famous dialogue in uh, John chapter 18, I believe it is, where Jesus is having a dialogue with Pilate. And he says, I came to bear witness to the truth that I am the king. I am the Lord. And Pilate looks at him and he asks that question. He says, what is truth? I believe what he was asking is, are you sure truth is worth dying for? And what's so ironic about that scene, if you could just come in your minds for just a minute, give me a minute, and imagine this scene where Jesus is standing in the praetorium in front of Pilate, the most powerful man in this region, and he's having a dialogue with him about truth, that I come to bear witness to truth, that I'm the king. And Pilate says, what is truth? It's so ironic because that scene is so full of deception and lies. You've got the disciples who have scattered. They're hiding. They're afraid. You've got Peter denying Jesus, deceiving other people, saying, I don't know him. You've got the Jews who are outright lying, saying he's done this and that, and they're lying about him. And you've got Pilate manipulating, playing the political game so that he can make Caesar happy and appease the people. This place is so full of lies. And yet, without a word, it tells the greatest truth you'll ever know. Because there's one other character in this story. Pilate, Jesus, Jews, Peter, disciples. There's one other character. Do you remember his name? His name is Barabbas. And standing there with Pilate and Jesus, Barabbas comes out. And as it was their custom, uh, Pilate would release one prisoner to the Jews back to them and give him back to them. And there's Jesus and there's Barabbas standing in front of a bunch of liars. And he says, who do you want me to release? And they say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, the murderer, the thief. And Barabbas goes free. You say that scene is sort of uh, metaphoric in a sense. Because all of us can be, some, some of us can be like the disciples, maybe afraid to commit. Some of us can be like Peter. We're all in, but we just are a little embarrassed sometimes. Some of us can be like the Jews who are angry at what God's doing and forcefully against it. And some of us can be like Pilate, more interested in what people think about us than what Jesus. But the reality is all of us are Barabbas. All of us. That standing in front of that judge that day, we go free and he dies. It was for this truth Jesus came to tell you, I'll die so you can go free. And in the reality of that truth, you should have no fear to accept what God has told you, to own it, and to live it. That takes a step of faith, and you've got to put this belt on and say, I'm going to fight this war, and I'm not going to let Satan win anymore. And if that's your case today, if you're tired of Satan winning, put on the belt of truth and let it start shaping and changing. Let's stand and let's sing.